0: So today's title is um, Sanctifying Christ as Lord. That's an interesting sentence that we see in 1 Peter 3.15, in the NASB at least. Uh, We're going to get into what that means. The subtitle is Why You Need to Be Fully Surrendered to God. But before we get into it, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can come before you to receive your grace and receive your instruction. And we thank you that your instruction is grace. We pray that... Uh, We would just really get the point, Lord. We pray that we would see that you are Lord, and you must be Lord in every area, or you're not Lord at all. We pray that we would get it, and we pray that we would live it, and we thank you for your grace. Amen. All right, so I'm going to mention the term surrender a number of times in the sermon, but I want to define it and give some synonyms for it. So defining what I mean by full surrender. So I mean resolving to obey God in everything, just like Stephen talked about. If you're not resolved that you're going to obey God in everything, then you're not surrendered to God, you're still Lord of your life. If you you pick and choose which areas you obey in and which areas you don't, you are Lord of your life. You are not surrendered to Christ. Christ thinks that because he's God, he's also Lord, and he's right. So just for definition, I mean resolving to obey God in everything regardless of cost. But I don't mean that you're going to succeed in that every time. I don't mean being perfect. None of us are going to be perfect in this life. You're still going to fail. But in spite of the fact that you're still going to fail, you can still resolve that you're going to obey God in everything, no matter what. And if you haven't resolved that, you're not surrendered to him. You're still Lord of your life. It's not about being perfect. Uh, let's look at John, 1 John 2, 1. My children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Bible's realistic. It knows we're going to f- sin. It knows we're going to fail at our resolves, at least from time to time but there's still a huge difference between having the resolve and failing and not having the resolve at all. And that's a very important difference. Very important. Some synonyms uh, that for you know, surrender to God or full surrender would be like fully submitted, submission to God, fully committed to obedience, Resolved to obey God in every area, no matter the cost. And these synonyms are in the outline you have in your bulletin. And again, I don't mean that you'll always succeed. I can assure you, you won't always succeed. But it's about the resolve to obey Christ in every area. Because if you don't have that, Christ isn't Lord, you are. So I have a two-fold premise for this sermon now that we have defined that. Number one, God commands all Christians to be fully surrendered to his will. And if you've never fully surrendered to him, then you haven't made Christ Lord of your life. And if you've never made Christ Lord of your life, you've never fully been converted to Christ. The second premise is that all Christians are called to walk daily in full surrender to God. And if we've gotten away from it, which can't happen, then we need to come back to it. But we'll explain these premises a bit more fully as we get into it. So let's start with the first part. The first subsection I have for this is that you know, God commands us to full surrender, full submission to him. So let's just show a few verses that show that. Let's look at First Peter 3.15 in the NASB. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you to give an account for the hope that is within you, but with gentleness and respect sanctify christ as lord in your hearts what does that mean does christ need sanctified i thought he was perfect sanctification or sanctifying means to set aside as holy holy means set apart so setting apart we're to set apart christ as lord in our hearts there can only be one lord in your heart it's you or it's christ And we are to set Christ aside as Lord in our hearts. Commanded. Let's look at Romans 12, verse 1. Oh, uh, one more thing I wanted to say about that. If you have any reservations on obedience, like I obey God except, or I don't have to obey God if, then you're not sanctifying Christ as Lord, you're sanctifying yourself as Lord. But let's look at Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you have reservations on obedience in any area, then how can you call that offering your body as a living sacrifice? Exactly, you can't. A sacrifice is something you've given up. If you haven't given up your life, it isn't a sacrifice. Christ believes Christ is Lord and Christ is right about that. And we need to acknowledge him as such. Let's look at Ezekiel 18, verse 30. So this is, you know, Ezekiel talking to Israel. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Talking on behalf of God to Israel. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from some of your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Oh, no, wait, I misread it. Turn from all of your transgressions. You don't get to pick and choose. Christ is Lord and he commands you to turn from all of your transgressions. It's mentioned again. Let's look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20. The Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not just part, not just what they pick and choose, not just on days when they feel like it, not just when other people treat them nicely. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And let's look at, lastly, uh, Matthew 5, verse 19. Jesus speaking. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We don't get to ignore one of God's commandments. We don't get to pick and choose. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I think it's pretty clear God commands full submission to him. The next section I wanted to talk about is why we should be fully submitted to God. I'm never going to tell you to do something without telling you why. There has to be a good reason, or else it isn't worth doing. First reason is God commanded it, but there's more. Number one if we've never made Christ Lord of our lives, then we've never been fully converted because we've never fully repented. So, you know, repenting is part of the gospel. Peter and Jesus and others frequently said, repent and believe. That's conversion. You need Christ to be fully Lord and fully Savior. You're not any bit Savior of you, it's entirely him, and you can't be any bit fully Lord. That must be entirely him. And if you don't have that, you haven't been fully converted to Christ. Christ's call is to repent and believe. Let's look at that just a little bit briefly. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 17.30 The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is like... The first step in the gospel repenting and believing. We need to understand that it's still by grace and faith. Our repentance doesn't save us, but if we don't repent, we don't have faith. We don't have real faith that God is God and that God is good if we don't trust him enough to obey his commands. Number two, if we're not fully surrendered, if we're not fully submitted, we won't really be growing in the Lord. So I'm going to talk about this a bit later in the sermon when I talk about my personal experience with this and my personal testimony. Um, but it's kind of ridiculous to Expect to be growing as a Christian if you're not submitted to God. I would encourage you to expect to not grow if you're not submitted to God. I would compare it to expecting to grow in a marriage while living in an affair. Christ is uh, God. He's to be worshipped. We are to worship God and have no idols before him. Idolatry, or worshiping idols, including ourselves, is spiritual adultery. And expecting to grow in God while we're Lord of our life is like expecting to grow in your marriage while you're living in an affair. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. If you wanted to grow in your marriage, you should stop the affair. That's the first thing you need to do if you want to grow in your marriage and you're living in an affair. Number three, obeying God is what's best for us and those around us. So there's a few reasons for this. The first one, God always rewards obedience. Sometimes when we obey God, it's tough or it's difficult, or it brings, you know, immediate consequences that might be painful in the natural. Sometimes it might even bring persecution. But God always makes obedience to him worth it because God is the rewarder of obedience to him. Let's look at Luke chapter six, twenty-two and twenty-three. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so their fathers did to the prophets. We don't have time to get too deep into it, but it's a, it's a principle throughout the Scriptures. It's a theme throughout the Scriptures. God you know, is a judge, and he rewards obedience to him. He will always make it worth it. If you genuinely obey God the way he instructs from the heart, it's never going to not be worth it. Sooner or later, it will be evident that it was worth it. You can't believe the Bible and say that sometimes obedience to God isn't worth it, because the Bible teaches the opposite. But not just that, our obedience or disobedience can affect those around us. When David, um, as king of Israel, was walking in obedience, things would tend to go well for Israel. And, you know, some of his more major disobedience really affected Israel. As a result of um, committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband, there ended up being civil war in Israel because of him and his son. Don't think that your obedience or disobedience affects only you. That's a lie. It always affects those around you as well as you. Fourth point of why we should be fully submitted to God. Reserving lordship for ourselves in any area is inviting the discipline of God into our lives. So, um, you know, fatherly discipline is a biblical concept, and God as our Father does discipline us. Let's look at Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father and a son whom he delights. When do fathers discipline their kids? Do they discipline them for no reason, randomly, when they feel like it? No, they don't. Good fathers, and you know God is the best father there is. He's the model for all good fathers. Good fathers discipline their children when they disobey And by reserving lordship for ourselves, by um, refusing to submit to God, we're inviting God's discipline into our lives. There's some biblical examples. I want to look at two of them. Uh, We're not going to look up the passage because it's kind of long, but Jonah. John did a series on Jonah about six months to, uh, a year ago, I think. But, um, You know, we all know Jonah fairly well for the most of it. Um, God told Jonah, you know, probably this, that, and the other, and most of the time he obeyed. He was a prophet. He was a prophet in good standing with the people. He probably obeyed a lot of the time. But he had reservations on his life where he was going to still be Lord. If God tells me to preach to these Ninevites, forget it. No. I don't need to do that I don't have to obey God if he tells me to preach to people I think don't deserve it. He was reserving lordship of his life in an area. And God was gracious with him. God could have, you know, just judged him immediately for that. But God disciplined. God didn't punish. What did God do? God sent a giant fish after him. Well, first, God had him thrown into the sea. God chased him with a storm. That probably wasn't pleasant. He may have been sleeping, but he had a rude awakening. The sailors weren't too happy. He was inviting the discipline of God into his life by reserving lordship of his life. He refused to submit to God. But God drew him back. Another example um, king solomon you know king solomon obeyed god in most everything or set out to except for the rules for kings about not going to egypt to get many horses not acquiring too much gold and not acquiring too many for not acquiring foreign wives he's like i'll obey god except in these three things And the, those three things, especially the foreign wives, one was his downfall. They drew his heart away from God. They caused, um, you know, the kingdom to the kingdom of Israel, but not of Judah, to fall away from his family for a time, for a long time. But that's restored in Christ. The fifth reason we need to be fully submitted, fully surrendered, fully resolved to obey God is because if we're not resolved to obey God, we'll be weak against temptation. Pre-deciding what you're going to do really helps. Sometimes, you know, you can go to Walmart and you're waiting in the checkout and you see this candy bar. And it's, it's just so tempting. It's 99 cents. I already had all my calories and then some, but Reese's, and if I predecide the Reese's is there, it's ninety-nine cents. I've had all my calories. It's much easier to say no to temptation if you've predecided that you're going to, than if you haven't. Let's look at Daniel chapter one verse eight. So you know Daniel was a captive from Israel that was brought to Babylon. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. This is one of those areas where you really would need to like plan ahead and man- mentally resolve, I'm going to obey God. What would probably happen to him for doing this? Odds are he would die he was probably going to be executed. You don't say no to the king of Babylon, especially when you're a captive. You're not a citizen, you're a captive. He resolved that he was going to obey God instead of the king of Babylon. And that's going to take some resolve. And his resolve strengthened him so that when temptation came, he didn't give in. There were at least two times in his life where he was going to be executed for following God, and he decided he was still going to follow God. So fully surrendering to God, which is the call for all Christians, all Christians are called and commanded to do that, fully resolving to obey God strengthens us against temptation. So I want to take a section of the sermon to talk about my testimony with this. So I grew up uh, in the church, but I grew up never being taught that you need to be submitted to God or fully submitted to God. It wasn't like taught that you don't have to, it was just never taught that you do have to. So I kind of just, you know, never thought about it. So I had various sins I would justify. I'm like, well, that's okay because of this. But I didn't think of myself as a disobedient Christian. So let's see, where should we start with this? So when I was 15, I basically lived for the enjoyment of sexual sin. That was like why I got up in the morning. That was my chief hope of happiness in life, was to watch more porn. That wasn't, you know, very surrendered to God. <laughs> um, I was cool with obeying God in every other area, but I thought, you know, this one, it's mostly fine. It's just one area. And I kind of obey God in it. I don't commit idolatry. I, 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 I don't live in an affair. I don't commit fornication. It's fine. It's okay. Whatever. And I, I really believed that. And I didn't think of myself as a disobedient person. But eventually, God pursued me and defeated me in that. So it's kind of miraculous. Um, I didn't start to find sin disgusting. In fact, I was growing more and more okay with it. Like, I used to feel guilt for it, and then I started to feel okay that I didn't feel guilty about it. My heart was being hardened. And eventually, like, miraculously, God just caused me to stop enjoying it, and I, to this day I can't explain how that happened. I didn't find it disgusting. I didn't think God was worth obeying. Not in every area. I just started to not be able to enjoy it. And I couldn't even be happy in life. And I realized, um, you know, if I had always heard, if you want to have true happiness in life, it needs to come from a relationship with God. Because God made us for himself. And we won't be fully satisfied until we're satisfied in him. So, you know, I kind of had a decision to make. I'm like, well, this isn't working. I keep living for my own pleasure and, like, This has been going on for weeks where I'm just not satisfied with life and I need to do something about it. And so it seemed crazy to me at the time, but I decided, I guess I have nothing left to do but to decide to obey God and give up living for porn and pursue a relationship with him. That radically changed my life. That is the best decision I ever made. I would say I wasn't really converted before then because I had never made Christ Lord of my life. Until then, I had never actually been growing in the Lord, hardly. After that, I started growing immediately, like pretty quickly by comparison. Because you shouldn't expect to be growing if you're not submitted to God, if you're not resolved to obey Him and everything. If Christ isn't Lord of life, don't expect to grow. And if you're not fully resolved to obey God in everything, Christ isn't Lord of your life. So how surrender should be played out in practice? How submission should be played out in practice? If we're, um, you know, fully Committed to obeying God, if we're submitted to him, if we're surrendered to him, what should that look like? What should that cause us to do? Number one, we should seek to know what all his commandments actually are. Let's look at a few verses. Let's look at Ephesians 5 verse 10. This is kind of in a list of commandments that Paul is giving the Ephesians and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If we want to please God, shouldn't we figure out what is pleasing to God? I'd think so. Let's look at Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. And when he sits... Okay, so this is um, in Deuteronomy 17... These are rules that God was giving for the kings of Israel to come. They didn't have a king at the time, but God knew they were going to have a king later, so he made some rules in the Torah for the king to follow. And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and by doing them, that his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he might not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." He was supposed to have, you know, his own copy of God's Word, which may have was harder to come by in those days. They didn't have as many copies as we do. We have the internet. It's great. But, uh, you know, he was to have his own copy of God's law, and he was to read it every day because it was very important that he knew what it was. Let's look at Josh 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, because that will help us to do it. If, if you're surrendered to God, but you've never read the whole Bible and you don't plan to, that doesn't make sense. If you're committed to obeying God in everything, and you've never even read the entire Bible and you're not trying to, you're not actually trying to figure out what God wants you to do in life. If you've never read the whole Bible and you're not trying to, you're not trying to figure out what God wants you to do in life. We should seek to know all of God's law, all of God's word, and to know it well. I would highly recommend not only do you read through the whole thing at least once, but you do it frequently, like every year or two. That's what God commanded, you know, the kings of Israel to do, constantly or daily be reading his word. If we actually care about obeying him, we should be doing that. The second way uh, surrender and submission should be played out in practice. If we have besetting sins, we should be seeking help and growing out of them. Let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run, the, uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us. So what does this mean? It's not talking about sin in general. Well, I think it's talking about specific sins. Because we all tend to have a few sins, this one or that one, that clings closely to us personally. I've never met a Christian who didn't have, like, one particular struggle that they struggled with more than other things. We all have that one sin that clings closely. It's different for different people. But I've never met a person who doesn't have it. We are to set that aside, and we, are, we should seek help with that. That's not an easy thing to do. If it was easy, it wouldn't cling closely. <laughs> The Nazbe says the sin which so easily entangles us. We all have certain sins that are certain sin which easily entangles us. We all have weaknesses. Let's look at Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. If anyone is caught in a transgression, caught in English can have two meanings. It doesn't mean if anyone's found out. It doesn't mean that if you have secret sins and someone finds out, we need to help that person once someone finds out about it. But, you know, not before. It means that if someone's stuck, if someone's trapped, if someone's caught, trapped or stuck or entangled in a transgression, you, her spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If you are currently struggling with an entangling sin that you're caught in, you should seek help with that. God gives us his church and spiritual authority to help us. God doesn't just, you know, he wasn't just thinking one day, you know what they need? More authority for no reason. (laughs) We might think God thinks that way, but he doesn't. God gives spiritual authority to help, and for that reason alone. If we're not listening to spiritual authority, we need to examine our view of spiritual authority or examine whether or not we're actually submitted to God. Let's look at Hebrews 13.17 in the New Living Translation. I like the New Living Translation. Simple. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. You know, we all have battles in our sanctification that are tough. Most everyone has or has had at some point a sin which easily entangles them. But God gives us resources for that. We don't have to fight that battle alone. We can seek help. So the second way surrender and submission should be played out in practice is if we have besetting sins, we should seek help in growing out of them. Third thing, we must be submitted to the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to get too deep into this, but, you know, the Holy Spirit does speak to us. He'll never contradict the Scriptures. If you hear something and you think it's the Holy Spirit, but it contradicts the Scriptures, it isn't the Holy Spirit. You can bet on that. But, you know, if we think we're submitted to God and the Holy Spirit tells us to do something and we don't do it, guess what? That's not submission to God. So we we must be submitted to the Holy Spirit. And the fourth thing, the fourth way full submission should be played out is we will repent when we sin. You will sin. We all sin. Don't think that you're going to do perfect. When we sin, we will repent, and we'll repent soon after we sin. If we're letting sins go on unrepented of for days or weeks at a time, that's a huge problem. That reveals a heart problem. I would say that's good reason to consider whether or not you actually hold Christ as Lord. If you're willing to defrone Christ as Lord for weeks at a time, that's bad. That's not a good sign for how you're doing spiritually. The mark of a true Christian is that they repent. Christians are those who repent and believe the righteous falls 7 times and then rises again it's not literally 7 times i fell more than that you know let's not go into that but uh, 7 means perfection the righteous falls perfectly <laughs> that means he falls a lot um being you know christianity is about repentance Christianity is about the fact that we aren't perfect and we can't do perfect. Christianity is about Christ's grace. The mark of a Christian is that they repent. I want to talk about something else in regards to this. Um, we should repent you know, soon when we sin. But David's biggest problems in his life came out of a season where he was living in unrepentant sin. When he committed adultery, do- Adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband so that he could take her for his own wife. I think he didn't repent for, of that for like a year. Because Nathan didn't confront him until the child was born that he got Bathsheba pregnant with. He had acknowledged sin in his life that he was acknowledging, and like you can't just not know that you committed adultery and killed someone. That's not a sin out of ignorance. He knew this was happening. He acknowledged it, and he had acknowledged unrepentance for like a year. And like, you know, God sent Nathan to him and confronted him, and by God's grace he did repent, and God forgave him. But all of David's biggest problems in life came out of that. After that, there was civil war, and, you know, one of his sons killed the other. Like, he had some bad problems that came out of this. I would say the problems that came out of this were worse for him than being pursued by Saul. David's worst problems came from acknowledged unrepentance that he let last for a year. We should repent quickly, because we're all still going to, you know, still have sins, but we are to repent quickly. That shows that we, you know, regard Christ as Lord. So the last um, section of this, I call it dealing with objections to Surrender. Dealing with objections to submission. Dealing with objections to making Christ Lord of your life. Number one, I could never obey in this area. You know, that's something we've all thought before. I've thought that. But that's something you would only say if you weren't submitted to God. And you have to remember, surrender isn't about, you know, doing perfect. It's about being committed to seeking to obey Him. And if you're not committed, you know, that's the real problem. The Bible says that God limits temptations so that they're not more than we're able to bear. You can't say, I could never obey God in this one area. What you should say is, I really don't want to and don't plan on obeying God in this one area. What you should really just say is, Christ isn't Lord of my life, I am. If ever you catch yourself thinking, I could never obey in this one area, rephrase it, Christ isn't Lord of my life, I am. You know, uh, the next one. I could never obey God if such and such happened. That's just reserving lordship. That's like Jonah. I'll obey God in everything, but goodness, telling the Ninevites about God? No, I couldn't do that. He was just reserving lordship. Another common objection we have. If God doesn't do such and such for me, I don't have to obey him. the primary reason we obey God isn't out of gratitude. The primary reason we obey God is because, guess what? He's God. And if he doesn't run the world as we wish, he's still God. And he's still judge. So if If you ever find yourself thinking, if God doesn't do this for me, I don't have to obey him, I would encourage you, you probably never made him Lord of your life to begin with. If you find yourself thinking that. God is God and we obey him because he's God. Another common objection we have: it's just one area. I'm still pretty obedient. That one's real easy to slip into. King Saul, the first king of Israel, he had that one. Um, this is a bit of a long passage, but it's not too long. Let's read 1 Samuel fifteen one through twenty three. and Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Alemech and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites. And Saul devoted the Amalekites from uh, Hevelah as far as Shur, which is the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fanned calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction." The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, Saul, come to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. I'm still pretty obedient. It's just this one area. In fact, it's actually for God. Why might they want to do this? Well, you know, as part of the Mosaic Law, when you had a sacrifice to God that was like an animal, you would still get to eat it. So, you know, it works out well for them too. So Saul said they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you were literal in your own eyes and you are, not, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil to do what is evil on the sight of the Lord? But Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, And have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said to him, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. But that's an easy habit to fall into, telling yourself it's just one area, I'm still pretty obedient. But that's not true obedience. Another one, it's easy to fall into. It's not sin because it technically doesn't match the word for word description. You know, um, if I just apologize, it doesn't matter that I'm still bitter in my heart. I forgave them. That's a lie we tell ourselves. It's very easy to get into the habit of like justifying sin. It doesn't match the word for word description. I didn't technically commit adultery. I just lustfully look at other women. Like I didn't really murder this person. I just hate him and want him to die. It's still sin. God commands obedience from the heart. We'll wrap this up quickly. The next objection we commonly have, it's just this season and then I'll repent. That's really easy to fall into. I told myself that all the time. That didn't go so well for Saul. That didn't go so well for David if he thought that. I would highly discourage thinking that. It's, you know... Res, being Lord of your own life is still inviting the discipline of God. It's not recommended to do for any season of life. The last uh, objection I want to address this one we have multiple types. I don't have to if. Like, I don't have to forgive others if they don't apologize. That's not what the Bible says. <laughs> I don't have to submit to authority if I don't agree with it. That defeats the whole purpose, though. But we still think that, don't we? If others don't serve me, I don't have to serve them. Because God's a God of justice, and he wants life to be fair, right? Don't go justifying disobedience to God's word with God's word. That's just proof that you don't consider Christ Lord. You consider yourself Lord. So if you're holding on to any one of these objections and you're not repenting of it, you're not walking in submission to God. So in conclusion, we should examine ourselves. If we have a single area of our life where we're not committed to seeking God to do whatever he asks of us, then we're not walking in complete submission to God and we are Lord of our life. I also want to emphasize it's not about being perfect. You are still going to sin. You're still going to make mistakes. It's not about being perfect. It's about resolving to obey God. It's about acknowledging that he's Lord. Along with faith in Christ, your surrender to God is the most important thing in your life. So we should examine ourselves and we should pray that if we aren't surrendered to God, God would open our eyes to see that. Surrender to him needs to be daily. But that is the end of that. Let's have our communion meditation. Let's turn back to 1 John 2, verse 1. My children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's a wonderful thing. Because we sin and we're going to, but we have an advocate before the Father. You know, the words from this sermon may have been hard, and it's an important point, it's a serious point, it needs communicator. But I don't want to communicate that there isn't grace. There is grace, and that is the point of the gospel. There is grace and mercy in Christ, and we can always find it. It doesn't matter if we've lived unsurrendered to Him for years. It doesn't matter if we frequently sin and you know, fail in our commitment to obey Him. God gives grace to His people. We should seek Him for that grace. But Christ is our advocate. Let's quickly look at Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. This is Christ being an advocate in practice. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, to accuse the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, I love this, the Lord said to Satan, it wasn't Joshua that said to Satan, God said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said to him, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by Praise God for giving us Christ an advocate who is always on our side no matter matter how much filth and guilt we're clothed with. Christ is always on our side and when Satan accuses us, Christ himself says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. God is here to redeem us and God's heart longs to show mercy. The communion uh, servers can come forward.